Our Bible reading for today is Galatians chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by words, works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The law I now live in the the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Uh, In the Bible reading, you may have noticed the name uh, Cephas pop up a couple of times. Uh, It's just another name for Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter. Uh, Some of your Bibles, you might notice, have a little footnote telling you this. uh, But if not, now you know. Well, have you ever found yourself in a social situation where you're the token Christian in a larger group of people. And you've done something that prompted one of them to say something along the lines of, that's not very Christian of you. How did you respond in that situation? Were you tempted to agree with them and apologise? From that point on, did you vow never to say or do whatever it is that you had done uh, in order to leave a good example of what it means to be a Christian to your non-Christian friends? If you have, then there's a good chance that you've signalled to them and to the watching world that being a Christian is about being morally upright. It's about making the right choices. That acceptance before God means being a good person who rarely does wrong. And you know in your heart of hearts that, that acceptance before God is only on the basis of faith in Christ. You know that you're a rotten sinner, and yet in these brief moments... It's extraordinarily tempting to be a good example of moral character. Maybe so as not to tarnish the reputation of Christianity. Uh, Maybe it's not to tarnish the reputation of other Christians that they might know, or whatever else it might be. But this kind of behaviour, this outward piety, this is precisely what Peter was doing in today's passage. You see, Peter knew the gospel. He knew that he was justified by faith in Christ, But under the right social conditions, he acted as if obedience to moral and ceremonial laws were vital to his justification. 
So Paul, in this passage, accuses him of denying the truth of the gospel. And just as we sometimes want to leave a good example of an upright moral character in front of our non-Christian friends, well, these actions, much like Peter's, in fact may lead people away from the gospel of justification by faith alone into a false understanding of Christian virtue in which people believe that that we somehow earn our way into heaven. And this depiction of Christianity, uh, it's not uncommon in almost all movies and TV shows, but Paul argues that this behaviour denies the truth of the gospel. And so, Galatians 2.11, it opens with a bit of a bang. Our reading begins with a scene of Paul publicly rebuking Peter for this type of behaviour. We're greeted with Paul busting down the double doors and storming up to Peter in the middle of his lunch and rebuking him to his face, even going so far as to calling him condemned in verse 11. All for something that he has done. Now, this reaction might seem over the top. It might seem a bit extreme coming from Paul. I mean, he's publicly rebuking one of the highly esteemed apostles of the church, a man who personally followed Jesus around and sat under his teaching. He is also one of the so-called pillars of the church in verse 9 of chapter 2 in today's reading. And along comes Paul. Halfway through Peter's lunch, he bursts through the doors and subjects Peter to an extreme amount of humiliation in front of all of his friends as he lectures Peter about his ungodly actions. So what did he do to deserve this? What had Peter done wrong? We'll get into the specific details of this soon, uh, but for now I want us to see that his action resulted uh, in three things. If you're a note-taker, feel free to write these down because these will come in handy later in the sermon. So first, Peter's actions, Paul says, they denied the truth of the gospel in verse 14. Two, his actions denied the gospel of justification by faith in Christ. That's verse 16. And three, his actions, like the spreading of a disease, led many others down this road as well. Hopefully by the end of this talk, uh, we'll come to realise why it's actually pretty hard to overstate the seriousness of Peter's actions and yet how much we participate in that sort of behaviour. But like a movie that begins with a dramatic scene, uh, before bringing us to this crazy event, we must see what led us up to this point. We must take a step back from Paul's confrontation with Peter and briefly look at the critical moments that led to this. And this brings us to point one on your outlines. Uh, Paul's gospel of freedom is confirmed by the apostles. So way back in chapter one in Galatians, we read that Paul received the gospel from God. This was not of human origin, he says in verse 11. He tells us that he didn't consult the apostles to confirm the gospel until around three years later. And even then, he only had a very brief visit to Jerusalem, staying with Peter for a mere 15 days. And he also stumbled upon James in this time. Now, if Paul's gospel, the gospel he had been preaching, wasn't the gospel, that brief visit to Jerusalem, when he saw these two highly esteemed apostles, Peter and James, well, that would have been the end of it. But it wasn't. Instead, at the end of chapter 1, we're told that Paul went on to other cities where people were celebrating his miraculous conversion, saying, 
The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He's come full circle. And in other words, him preaching, it's a sign that he knew the gospel. Paul knew the gospel. And chapter 2 then opens with these words. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, it's very easy to miss. Uh, Sometimes a little bits of information in the text, we kind of overlook it. But there was a staggering 14-year gap between his fly-in, fly-out visit with Peter and James and his subsequent visit to Jerusalem. And Paul had been a very busy man in this time. You see, he'd been visiting various cities, if you read in Acts 9. Uh, He'd been preaching the gospel to just about anyone that would listen to him, including to many of those in Antioch who were Gentiles, non-Jews. But a problem had arisen during this time. You see, he'd caught wind of a dangerous teaching infiltrating the church, a teaching which was so insidious, Paul called those who were spreading it false believers in chapter 2, verse 4. And he claimed that their teaching threatened the truth of the gospel, the same accusation he throws against Peter a little bit later. So Paul again visits Jerusalem, right? He visits Peter, James, and John, these big apostles of the church, And what's the result? What's the result of him visiting them and telling them the gospel? Well, the text tells us two things. First, Peter, James, and John, they added nothing to his message. His gospel is indeed the gospel. And this immediately writes off the teaching coming from these false believers, which we talked about a moment earlier. And secondly, Peter, James, and John give Paul the right hand of fellowship in verse 9 and agree that he should continue to take the gospel to the Gentiles. For Paul, this is an absolute whitewash of a win. See, not only do all the apostles agree with his message, they agree that it is in fact the gospel of God to man, the genuine thing, but he also has their full commission support to continue preaching this gospel of justification by faith to the Gentiles under the right hand of fellowship with them. See, at this point, Paul couldn't ask for anything greater. Now, because of today's reading, right, we know what's about to happen to poor Peter in the hands of Paul. Um, But I want to step aside briefly uh, and talk about Peter's approval uh, in this context we've just been talking about, uh, why his approval of the gospel message only heightens the situation that we had in today's passage. You see, for Peter uh, to give his uh, a blessing, so to speak, of the Gentile mission to Paul, it should make full sense to us if we remember, we remember Peter's own experiences uh, with the Gentile believers in Acts 10. That is, Peter personally knows the welcoming hand of God uh, towards the Gentiles. If you remember from our series in Acts, uh, Peter at one point, he receives a vision from God on a rooftop. Uh, in which he's told to kill and eat a whole bunch of unclean animals. And this vision, in a nutshell, it was a declaration from God that he should no longer worry about the Jewish food laws because he was about to go into the house of a Gentile family and baptise them into the fold of God. That was Cornelius and his family in Acts 10, uh, if you want to look it up and jog your memory. 
You see, Peter knew firsthand that fellowship with the Gentiles had been ordained by God himself, and that they too were justified, were made right before God in the exact same way that he was. Peter knew this. And since that point, Peter undoubtedly had enjoyed his fair share of Gentile cuisine at the same time, as he inevitably mingled uh, in fellowship with them. And with all of this in mind, with him knowing that gospel is justification by faith, knowing that the ceremonial food laws no longer matter, knowing that he spent his fair share of fellowship with the Gentiles, the stage is set for Peter's dramatic confrontation with Paul in verse 11. This brings us to point two on your outlines. Peter denies the gospel by his lifestyle. Uh, Verse 11 introduces us to a new scene. We're no longer in Jerusalem. Uh, We're up in Antioch. This is the place where one theologian described uh, as the laboratory for Jewish-Gentile relationships in the early church. In other words, Antioch is where many Jews and Gentiles shared fellowship as one people under Christ. And this is, in fact, where the Gentile mission uh, began shortly after Peter's vision uh, in Acts 11. And it makes sense, therefore, that this this Jew and Gentile mix of believers uh, became what was effectively a new race of people, uh, which we're told were now known as the Christians. Both Jew and Gentile here in Antioch were on the same footing. Both had the gospel of grace, both needed Christ and nothing else, in order to be justified before God. Now, Peter, in this environment, he'd had his fair share of dining experiences with the unclean sinners, a.k.a. the Gentiles. He knows that the food laws no longer prevent him from sharing fellowship, as we covered earlier. In fact, he would have been extremely used to it, and he probably discovered the joys of thinly sliced rasher bacon uh, while he was at it. You see, Peter was no stranger to Jewish-Gentile fellowship because the gospel of justification by faith had grounded them all. It put them all on the same footing. However, a small group of Jews claiming to be under the authority of James back in Jerusalem, well, these guys come for a little visit in this ethnic hotpot of Antioch. And Peter sees them coming from a distance, probably with a pork chop still stuck between his teeth. And we're told in verse 12 that all of a sudden, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Peter slinks away from his Gentile brothers and sisters, despite knowing the truth, knowing the gospel that he and James and John had confirmed with Paul back in Jerusalem. And despite all of this, Peter gave in to fear and decided to act foolishly. He withdrew himself from the Gentiles in Antioch, and in doing so, he acted as if Christ wasn't enough. As if somehow the the Jewish moral and ceremonial laws were still a requirement for his justification. As if the Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish customs if they are to be truly saved. And these actions lead to the three things that I mentioned at the start of this talk. 
namely Peter's actions in pretending that Jewish law still mattered for justification, it meant that one, he denied the truth of the gospel in verse 14. Two, his actions denied the gospel of justification by faith in Christ and not works of the law in verse 16. And three, his actions, like the spreading of a disease, led many others down this road as well in verse 13. Peter's foolish actions in Antioch, in other words, could have led to one of the most catastrophic divisions of the early church. So the situation is dire. There was already enough uh, tension between the new Jewish-Gentile-Christian relationship. You can read plenty about that in Acts. But for a man that everyone looked up to, right? for a man who is the pillar of the church and esteemed leader, well, this was a step that could lead to the condemnation of countless lives because his actions demonstrated a nullification. It got rid of the truth of the gospel. The truth that our justification was by faith alone. It took away from the sufficiency of Christ. Now, Paul looked at the situation and he knew this. He knew the urgency of the situation. He could see the effects of these false believers in his own recent ministry. Hence, he went to the meeting with Peter, James and John that we've already spoken about to clarify the gospel, the one where they added nothing to it. And he could see now that these false believers were convincing Peter out of fear to act in a way that could decimate the church. Paul knew that for someone as prominent and as influential as Peter, someone who knows the truth and believes the truth, to then play act as if the truth doesn't matter, as if the gospel equals Christ plus something, in this case Christ plus uh, circumcision or Christ plus adherence to certain food laws, well, this is almost unforgivable. Notice the strong language that uh, Paul uses about Peter in verse 11. He says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He continues in verse 14. When I saw that they, that is, Peter and all the other Jews are following his lead. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Paul's saying, you're out there. You're dining with the Gentiles. You're eating their cuisine. I can almost smell last night's pork chop on your breath. And continuing, he says, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. See, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is Paul's mic drop moment with Peter in front of everyone. Paul demonstrates that Peter and his pious Jewish friends who have cut themselves off from eating with the Gentiles are absolute hypocrites because he knows 
that he is in precisely the same boat as them, the Gentiles, when it comes to their desperate need for Jesus. But here Peter is, acting completely out of line with this truth, acting as if the law somehow justifies the believer, that the gospel of faith in Christ is faith in Christ plus something else, even though he knows that this isn't the case. And for the rest of this chapter in Galatians, Paul deconstructs the implications of this. And he finishes with one of the most cutting verses in the entire New Testament. He says in 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And this brings us to point three on your outlines. The gospel equals Christ plus nothing. We've seen today that this prominent figure in the church, Peter, right, this apostle who walked with God, who did miracles, who proclaimed the gospel, who believed the gospel, and yet someone whose, whose fear of man led him to deny the gospel in his actions. We saw that Peter knew with unwavering certainty the truth of the gospel. He knew, as Paul says, that he could not be justified by works of the law, and yet, given the right circumstances, right, the right people show up, the right pressures get applied, and he keels over from a gentle breeze and acts as if the gospel is Christ plus works of the law, ultimately corrupting the truth of the gospel and leading many astray by his poor example. Yet I think that we in the 21st century are just as prone to making this mistake as Peter was, acting as if the gospel is Christ plus something, even though we know that it isn't. Acting as if our salvation depended on Christ plus you name it. Uh, there may be some who think that uh, the consumption of alcohol is not compatible with a belief in Jesus. And you may be thinking right now, oh no, here he comes. What's he going to say now? But listen carefully. Because adding any condition to our justification denies the truth of the gospel. Adding any condition takes away from the sufficiency of Christ. There are plenty of good reasons not to drink, plenty of wise ones. I have plenty of friends that do it, and I deeply respect those decisions. But to claim that our salvation depends upon it is completely and utterly false. Likewise, a few years back, uh, we had the postal vote uh, regarding uh, gay marriage. And yes, indeed, there was wisdom in voting a certain way. But if for one second anyone told you that your salvation, that your right standing before God depended upon which box you ticked, they are taking away from the sufficiency of Christ alone and not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to be clear. Right? Paul's freedom from the law here in Galatians, it doesn't mean that we can descend into a state of lawlessness either. In fact, the entire logic of Galatians 2, 19 to 21, uh, the last little paragraph that Steve read for us, uh, it addresses this. It hinges around the fact that Christ now lives in you, so act in a way that reflects this reality. 
You have been crucified with Christ, and the life you now live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Your desire to live a godly life, in other words, is precisely because you've been freed from the curse of sin. You see, Paul isn't promoting lawlessness, this idea that that Christ's death is so sufficient that you can deliberately go on sinning and doing whatever you want to your heart's content. Not at all. But if I'm to be honest, I don't think that we're in any danger of going down that path, the path of complete and utter lawlessness. I think the bigger problem we face as Christians is usually the opposite. It's adding additional rules to our justification of making the gospel Christ plus something. You know, Christ plus a certain adherence to Bible reading or prayer. Christ plus voting for the correct political party. Christ plus absolute sexual purity. And the list could go on. Paul in Galatians 2 makes it absolutely clear that our justification before God is only found through faith in Christ. But there's one more, uh, even more devastating problem than this, than adding to our justification. It's like when Peter, right? We, we know when we think about Peter that he knows the truth of the gospel. He knows that we are justified by faith alone, but he acted as if this isn't the case. You see, one of the most devastating facts about today's passage is not Peter's denial of justification by faith, because Paul clearly says that both he and Peter know this fact. He doesn't outright deny justification by faith. In fact, Peter does the opposite. He confirms it uh, when Paul visits him to check the gospel. He does it twice. No, the deeper problem is that Peter's actions don't align with this reality. And as a result, we see in verse 13 that he led many astray. You see, our actions, according to Paul, must align with the truth of the gospel. So, for example, when when we parent young children, children who look up to us as the highest authority in their life, like those who are following Peter, when we raise our kids, do we make it clear through our actions that their acceptance before God is entirely because of faith in his son, Jesus? Or do we act as though their behaviour determines their acceptance towards God, as if somehow they need faith in Christ plus good behaviour? When non-Christians, maybe in the workplace or elsewhere, look to you as the authority or the model of what it means to be a good Christian, do they see a justified sinner, like our opening illustration with the party? Do they see someone who is a broken person who's justified through faith, a broken person who needs the grace of God? Or do they see someone who is the moral policeman, who looks as though they're trying to gain acceptance through their own moral purity? See, the gospel The good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of this, our justification relies solely on faith in Christ. So we may look around the room 
or of those in our church. Uh, we, we may wonder uh, on occasion where people are at. We might see some unhelpful habits or moral failures that need addressing, and, and these are matters which should be addressed with discretion and wisdom, certainly. But if you've determined in your heart that someone cannot be a Christian on the basis of these things, be careful that you haven't shifted the goalposts that God himself set for salvation. You see, it's very hard to determine what's going on in the hearts of those around you. You may look at their lives and judge them by their personal moral failures or successes. I've even heard people mutter under their breath at friends of mine the words, are they even Christian?" not realising that that this person they're talking about has a very complicated life. And outwardly, yeah, there there might be a little refining that needs doing, but inwardly, they're saved by faith alone. And if you find yourself pronouncing a judgement on them in your heart because of their behaviour, be careful that you, who know the gospel of justification by faith alone, be careful that you don't act as though this this person's justification depended on something other than faith. Peter's actions today laid a heavy judgment on the Gentiles, implying that they weren't accepted before God until they adhered to certain conditions other than faith. So let's be careful that we, who like Peter, know the gospel of truth and for a lot of people are in positions of authority, Let's be careful that we don't act as though our acceptance by God is on the basis of Christ, on the basis of faith, plus something else. And lead those watching us, who see us as an authority, astray. Let's pray. Father God, uh, the gospel is incredibly rich. Uh, But Lord, we know that our justification, our acceptance before you, uh, is because of faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you that all of humanity uh, is judged by the same standard, Lord. We are judged as to whether we place our trust in Christ or not. And so I pray, Lord, that as we consider today's passage, uh, which is incredibly complex, Lord, as we consider what it means, Lord, Uh, to live for you, that we would be honest with those around us, honest with our children, that we are saved, we are made right before God, that the entry into heaven is only through our faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are consistent with this truth. Lord, help us uh, to know that the life we live in the body, we live for you because we have been crucified with you and it's no longer us that live but you that live in us. Lord, help us to navigate uh, these difficult waters. Help us to know what it means to be justified by faith. And I pray that as we look around and as we see uh, sinners, Lord, uh, in our church and in our communities, Lord, that we will be gentle with them and slow to judge, that we may know that they are justified in the same way that we are, Lord. And I pray that the fruit of righteousness, Lord, Uh, would be born out of the encouragement that we have of the fact that Christ did it all, that Christ did everything we need, Lord, to be made right with you. Amen.